Okay, back to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start a little earlier than our uh, text for today, um, <clears throat> just because of the it's connected to uh, the text from last week. So I'm going to pick up in 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, I ask that you would grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of you. Accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes I do my best thinking in the shower. Uh, I'm not sure if it's because I'm, I'm free of distractions. You know, I mean, all i got to do is shower. Uh, there's not phones and everything else that I need to answer or anything else. And so there I was the other morning, uh, kind of just showering and thinking. And I was thinking primarily about uh, my proposed GA seminar and really how to express the introduction. Uh, and I had one of those aha moments. And of course, uh, it was about two years too late for my book, uh, which really was my seminar is on. So hopefully it'll get incorporated into the book. And, but I thought as well, wow, this really works with what's going on in this text. And, and this is sort of where I ended up in my uh, shower thinking, is that if, we, if you remember the John Frame triangle, you know, you have uh, God and his word, me, my circumstances, that people tend to live on this bottom line. We're, we're focused on ourselves and our circumstances. And, and we really just think in terms of those two things. And if we... 
think about God at all, it really is, in, in a sense, uh, calling on God to kind of drop out of the sky, to parachute in, however we want to think about it, Star Wars beaming down, dealing with our circumstances, and then God sort of disappearing again until the next time we need him to deal with our circumstances. And so we really live on this bottom line most of the time. But what God intends is really to, for us to understand this bottom line in light of the top of the triangle. His word, his character, what he's done for us. So that while we live on the bottom line, it is uh, in light of everything else that he has said. What I see Peter doing here is speaking to troubled people who um, are dealing with their own desires, their own problems in themselves, who are dealing with circumstances that are difficult, they're experiencing affliction and most likely persecution, they're living on this bottom line, and what Peter is doing is reminding them of what's at the top of the triangle so that how they live on the bottom line changes. He wants them to integrate their story from this bottom line back into God's big story, which is the Scriptures. Okay? That sounds... Hopefully that makes sense. (laughs) It makes sense in my head. Uh, It may not make sense in your head. So, he's trying to reintroduce to them the big story that we find in Scripture of creation, fall, redemption, so that, it, so that their life has increased meaning and is connected. They recognize the connections between it and what God has done. The big idea this morning is that redemption from our passions results in faith and holy fear. There's a lot going on in these few verses. And so uh, we're going to go fast over some of these things. Not as in-depth, perhaps, as you might want me to be, but nonetheless, there it is. Let's start with the notion that redemption results in reverent fear as we sojourn. He kind of in the middle of this, you know, that's why I read this larger paragraph, because he goes, that and word means it's connected to what he just said, okay? And if you call on the Father, he's bringing them back to the reality of their adoption in order to be obedient sons. He's he's pulling them back into that idea. He's pulling us back into the idea because when we live on the bottom line, that's not how we think of ourselves. We don't think of the fact that we have a Father who is in heaven and that we are His children. We tend to think of ourselves as just alone in this world in a very existential frame of mind. But he says that we don't conform to those ide- those old desires that he mentioned in the, in the previous verses precisely because this Father that we call upon for help in prayer is one who judges impartially. We see Paul kind of having a similar idea in Romans chapter 2 as he's talking about Jew versus Gentile, and he mentions that God will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, 
but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so what part of what Peter wants them to understand is that their father is one who judges impartially. He is not like many earthly fathers who have favorites. Think of Isaac for a moment. He had favorites. He preferred Esau. His wife preferred Jacob. The favoritism really wreaked havoc within that family, and then it actually was even worse in Jacob's own family because his favoritism was tied to his favorite wife and therefore his favorite son. This father is not like that. He does not play favorites. And I see this working out in three particular ways uh, for us this morning. And uh, quickly, the first of these is, our Father disciplines us when we are unfortunately conformed to those sinful desires of our past. Meaning, our sin doesn't stop being sinful just because we've become Christians. Think of that, we we read from Hebrews chapter 12 this morning already, and that notion there is, He addresses you as sons. Okay, it's within that framework of adoption once again. He addresses you as sons, and and, and the author of Hebrews reminds them that because He loves you, the Father disciplines you. And so when we find that our lives are becoming conformed to those, uh, those sinful desires, one of the things he does for his children is to discipline them so that they can be trained by it and, as it says in Hebrews 12, produce a harvest of righteousness. And so when we experience discipline as God's children, we are not to think that he's seeking to destroy us, but he's seeking to remake us, to renew us to make us like Him so that we can bear much fruit. And He does this precisely because He cares about how we live. That's, the, that's Peter's point here. He still cares about how you live. It's not as though grace just means God doesn't care. It just means God does not destroy us. But He cares about how we live. Secondly, our Father loves us, but He does not love the sin that we commit. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This is true, as Paul said in Romans 8, but that does not mean He likes our sin. We had one of these moments this week in our house. One of the children was displaying a a particular sin. They were angry about something they probably shouldn't have been angry about. And instead of me getting angry, which is what typically happens, unfortunately, um, I wrapped my arms around the child. And I kept saying, I love you, but I don't love your anger. And I repeated, I kind of turned it around and I said, I hope you love me even though you don't love my anger. That's what the Father is communicating to us. 
that idea of um, hitting the sinner, but I mean, sorry, loving the sinner, hitting the sin, that's not true on an absolute basis. Okay? He loves the saint. He loves the child, even though he hates their sin. And so the Father does not coddle us in our sin. He calls us out of our sin. But He loves us despite our sin. Thirdly, remember, these were people who are being persecuted. There are people who are lying about them who are acting unjustly toward them, and they're wondering probably what's going to happen, and they need to know that God the Father will judge impartially. Meaning that they can trust Him to avenge them. That the judgment of the world is not the final judgment but that the Father will have His say, His children will be vindicated, and the wicked will be judged. And so there's this, an element, as we see from Romans chapter 8, that uh, our faith, the results of our faith, our adoption, are not necessarily completely obvious until the return of Messiah. That is when the adoption of God's sons is revealed. He says there, you've already been adopted, but there hasn't been the public announcement yet. And the public announcement of this adoption that you in particular have been adopted is going to come when Jesus returns. The separation of the sheep and the goats has that similar idea. These are my people. These are not my people. And so one of the great things that's going to happen when Jesus returns is a great separation These really are my children. And they really will enter into my rest. They they really do have my blessing and my joy. But right now, it doesn't always seem that way. So it's a matter of faith. It is precisely because he judges impartially that Peter says they were to conduct yourselves with fear throughout your exile or your staying, or another way of putting it would be your sojourning. We're okay with conducting ourselves. We're okay perhaps with the sojourning, but there is that word that's in there, fear, that sometimes we fear. We don't like that word. We don't want a religion of fear, and I'm not offering you a religion of fear. Okay, it all depends how you understand that word within its context. Godly fear is a good thing. We see in Ecclesiastes 12, for instance, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so part of this fear is connected to the reality of God's assessment. But that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Depends how, what kind of fear you have in that. Exodus 20, oddly enough, verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now, how's that for fun? Don't be afraid so that you may fear. Okay? In other words, 
don't have the wrong kind of fear, but rather have the right kind of fear, a fear that leads you into obedience, or perhaps a better term instead of fear would be a reverence or respect that leads you into obedience. So fear, godly fear, or as they say, the fear of sonship, is a good thing. A couple more passages. In case you're inclined to think and, you know, well, you know, that's in the Old Testament, but we're living in the New Testament. Well, let's go to Acts. Chapter 9. And the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and... Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so one of the reasons the church, the early church grew is because they walked in the fear or the respect, the reverence of the Lord. Again, in Acts 13, the, the God of this people, oh, different. That's what you do with sojourning. Sorry, my bad. Okay, but let's go to sojourning. The same word that we find here that's translated exile is found in Acts 13, verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay slash exile slash sojourning in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. They have a fear that is, or a reverence that is also tied with the fact that they are sojourning in a particular place. They are surrounded by people who do not share their values and perspective. Uh, they may share something similar on the bottom line of the, of the triangle, but they don't have the top, the top of the triangle. Okay? So... What, what Peter, I believe, is talking about is not this slavish fear, but rather the fear of children who respect their father. That's what's getting on here. What do we see in the child who has no respect for their parents? A child that's out of control. A child that does not restrain its conduct but is going to hurt themselves and other people in the process. And so basically what we're finding here is, don't be a wild child. Know that you're loved by the Father. Know that He has um, he is one who loves you and will uh, guard, judge you impartially. But this reverence that we see is also connected to redemption. Because the very next sentence starts with the for. Okay? The purpose clause. The reason for this reverence in, in uh, lifestyle and conduct while they're sojourning is because of redemption. We see his great love to, to save us. We see that his intention to change us. And that is intended to shape how we live. Okay? God's truth of redemption, changing how we live down here on the bottom line. We're meant to be like Abraham, in a sense. Or better than Abraham, in a sense. But Abraham sojourned. 
We heard about that in, uh, in Genesis 12. Famine, he sojourns, it says. He goes down to Egypt, and he had a fear, but he had the fear of men, unfortunately. And so he told the partial truth, okay? Sarai was his half-sister. He said sister. Forgot to, he left out that part about wife. And so uh, the, the promise of God given at the very beginning of chapter 12 was put in, in jeopardy because of Abram's fear of man. We're to live differently in the midst of people because we belong to Him. Abram was told later in chapter 17, after years of doing similar things, that he was to walk blamelessly before the Lord. He was to be careful in his conduct during his sojourn in the land of Canaan. We have a similar idea there, I think, in Matthew 5. At least that's how my brain processed it. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The person who is careful with regard to their conduct ends up doing that which is right and ends up bringing praise and glory to their heavenly Father. It's, on the other hand, it's entitled people, it's hypocritical people who don't care how their, their actions affect other people and make, well, they don't bring glory to the Father. They bring dishonor to their Father. So, one way this could work out, for instance, uh, there's been some hubbub on Facebook, if you don't know, about a book that has turned into a movie. And uh, one, one person has told people, don't argue about the shack. And if there, well, some of you are excited about this movie that's coming out. I discourage you from being excited about this movie that's coming out for a variety of reasons. That's not the point. Their point was, in a public forum, we shouldn't be arguing about this because of how it will affect those who do not believe. Okay? We should talk about it amongst ourselves. It's a, in other words, it's a family discussion. Okay? Just like uh, if, if you're having a disagreement with your child, you don't do it in the middle of the street, typically, hopefully. Right? You go into the house, you have the conversation. There are some conversations that take place within the family that don't take place outside of the family and in public. And that's all that person hopefully is trying to say. We should talk about theology. We should talk about what may or may not be right about a thing like the shack. But we do it in such a way that we are not creating an offense for those who do not yet believe. So the realities of our sojourn and our adoption encourage us to live carefully in Christ. Secondly, Christ redeemed us from our futile passions. We're called to live faithfully in this exile or sojourning because, Paul, uh, Peter says, you were ransomed or redeemed. That word can mean either of those two options. We see, of course, Mark chapter 10, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
And that is defined by, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This word that Peter uses here refers to the idea of being released upon payment. It refers usually to someone who was a slave or someone who is a prisoner of war, and there is a payment that is required for their release from that status. We don't really think of it in those terms. Maybe this is a little better. I hold the distinction in my family of being the only one who didn't have to get bailed out of jail. That doesn't, doesn't mean I was good. <laughs> it just means I never got caught. Okay? Um, but what happens is you're put in captivity, and your parents or someone who loves you, cares about you, has to come down, pay money, so that you are able to go home. That's the idea. That Jesus paid a ransom in order to redeem us so that we could be free from something that had captured us. In this case, we are redeemed from, he says, the feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers. It's referring back to those passions or those desires or longings that we had when we lived in ignorance. We see a similar thing in Titus 2 when it talks about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem, same word, us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Remember, we talked about this a little bit last week. In places like Romans 1, we realize that when, we, um, when Adam broke God's law, when he rejected the truth, that people were given over by God to these passions. And these passions or desires, they enslaved us. And what happens here is that Jesus breaks the chains. These passions were futile. They did not accomplish what we hoped they would accomplish. They did not bring us lasting joy. They might have brought us fleeting joy, but not lasting joy. They didn't bring us peace, but actually when we, when we act upon them, they tend to bring discord. They did not bring security, but actually brought disintegration of security. So they're futile. And yet we see that these ways were handed down from our forefathers, and we can understand this in two particular ways, the first of which is the fact that we have a sinful nature from Adam. We all inherit a desire to rebel against God and to exert our own authority and autonomy, a sinful nature. But it's not simply that. We also inherit particular sinful patterns from our family. It's particular manifestations of that sinful nature that in, end up enslaving us. So Friday, decided to take the boys to the, to the movies. 
We went to see the new, you know, Lo, uh, Lego Batman movie. And Cartero, as you know, is a disaster right now. Okay? And so, in my mind, I'm thinking, we got to, you know, we start, we left a little later than I wanted to. Okay? So we're stuck. I'm hoping a train doesn't come. And the light turns green. And I'm ready to go. And I'm waiting on the people in front of me. And from the back seat I hear in unison, green means go. (laughs) They learned that from me. (laughs) By nature, they are impatient. Because they're an atom, so to speak. They've received this sinful nature from Adam, and so they are going to be, by nature, be impatient. But the way in which it manifested itself, green means go, get moving people, came from me. (laughs) And that's not the only thing that they get from me. This is the way life is. But the good news is, Jesus can redeem them. Jesus can break the patterns. Okay? He can set them free from these, um, just as He can set me free, from these worthless ways of life that we learned. The ways we learn to manifest our sinful nature as opposed to uh, revealing the image of God that's being restored into us in us by sanctification. The price for redemption here is not perishable things such as silver or gold, okay? Things that were valued by the culture that was around them, okay? But God was not valuing these things at all. These were probably some things that they, they themselves valued and they, um, because of some of the persecution, may have had diminished supplies of gold or silver. They were losing wages because of their faith in Jesus Christ, Okay, but there's something more important that's going on here. It was the precious blood of Christ who is a lamb without blemish or spot. And so Peter kind of reminds them of the sacrificial lambs that we see in Leviticus and Numbers, and you've got plenty of references in your notes for that. (coughs) That the lamb that was presented as a sacrifice was intended to be without a blemish, without a spot. It was supposed to be your good lamb, not the lamb you couldn't wait to get rid of because it was crippled. Jesus was a suitable sacrifice for our sin precisely because Jesus had no sin of His own. Jesus... um, was not careless in his living. He had no foibles. He had no weaknesses. There were no spots, no blemishes. But there is also a significant difference between Jesus and the lambs that were presented at the temple. I'm sure um, most of those lambs didn't necessarily want want to go to the priest. Someone else had chosen to sacrifice them. They hadn't decided to volunteer. It wasn't like they went to the flock and said, who wants to be the sacrificial lamb today? And, and uh, you know, little you goes, me, take me. But Jesus did. 
he volunteered for the mission because he loved his people that much and wanted them to be freed from the, the things that enslaved them so much that he became the price of their freedom and he chose to do it willingly. And so this knowledge of our redemption is meant to change our minds about the sin that we want to participate in as well as remind us that there is a redemption. That we don't have to live in this sin anymore. That the Father is disposed kindly towards us because Christ has redeemed us with His precious blood and it is greater than the sins that we commit. And so on the one hand, it should um, restrain us from committing sin when we when we realize the price of it is Jesus. But on the other hand, which we should not be restrained in coming to the Father because we know we're welcome because of Jesus. Do you understand those two ways in which it should be working in our lives when we bring it down to the bottom line and inform our circumstances? And so whether you're struggling with temptation or you gave in to temptation, the redemption of Jesus Christ matters. It is a precious thing that is meant to draw us nearer to the Father who loves us. So remember that you have been redeemed. And remember the price that was paid for that redemption. Thirdly, the Father chose Christ for our faith, sorry, for our faith and hope. The death of Jesus as a ransom for sinners was not an accident. It was not sort of a, oops, but rather we see He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. If we transliterated that word in the Greek foreknown, it would be prognosticated, to know beforehand. And so there's something going on. Just as we were foreknown by the Father in election, Jesus was also foreknown by the Father for our salvation. He was set aside. He was called or chosen in order to be the the Redeemer and the Mediator who would bring God's people back to God. And so... Golgotha is not a mistake that God made the best out of. Before the foundation of the world, Golgotha was chosen as the means of our redemption and the eternal Son was going to become incarnate as a man and go to the cross for our redemption. Jesus was foreknown and Jesus was chosen, but Jesus was also made manifest in the last times. And so the plan that was formed, the plan of redemption planned before creation was implemented in time. The eternal covenant between Father and Son was brought to pass. It's not like the master plan we have on the wall back there in the lobby. 
Okay? Because you know what? We've changed plans. <laughs> so that plan will never be enacted. Hopefully the new plan will, but I think we've changed plans like five times. I don't know. doesn't matter. God's plan's not like our plans. He's not revising it because of new circumstances. He's not revising it because of a change in resources that are available. He's not revising it because it is made, it was initially made according to his wisdom, his love, his justice. All of his attributes were, were involved in the counsel of his holy will. And so it's a perfect plan that was brought to pass. It's not just kind of sitting in a collection of possible plans upon the wall of God's office somewhere. Well, uh, this one didn't work out. And these five didn't either. No. There was one plan, and it worked. So, for the sake of the elect both them who received this letter and us who read this letter today, Jesus was sent so we could believe in God through Him. In other words, God not only appointed Jesus to die for our sins, but also to be raised from the dead. Remember, when we're talking about how the Spirit of Christ was working in the prophets, He predicted the sufferings, and subsequent glories of Messiah. And here we have the sufferings and the subsequent glories because Jesus is raised from the dead, the beginning of those subsequent glories. The God who raised Him from the dead is also going to raise us from the dead. And so if perhaps we suffer persecution and are martyred, don't worry. He who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead. Don't think it's over because humanity or some court has decided you're wicked. The Father shall vindicate. And even if you die a natural death, have confidence. The Father will raise you on the last day just as He raised His Son on the third day. And so the Father sent the Son, we see here, so that their faith and hope are in God, and so that our faith and our hope will also be in God. This is the question of of why do we hope and trust? The resurrection. The promised resurrection. That the Scriptures promised in the Old Testament and, and Jesus also promised in the Gospels, but we see repeatedly as fulfilled in the New Testament. That is why we trust and we hope in God. And that's what God intended. That's what the Father intended. Because the Son redeemed us with His blood. And the Father raised Him from the dead. And so he's the only way for us to come, <coughs> excuse me, to come to the Father. As Jesus said in uh, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. 
Luther notes that we cannot know God in the abstract, but we can ultimately only know God through Christ and Him crucified. There's no way to go around Jesus to know the Father, to know who the Father is, or to to engage in a relationship with the Father. You must go through the Son. And that's an exclusivism that really bothers some people. But there's no other mediator between God and man except the man Jesus Christ. However much we might wish there were, there's only one. And so continue to come through the one by faith. All right. Let's tie this thing it's which seems a little unwieldy, to, even in my mind, together. Peter wants to remind them that their life is not just about them and their circumstances, but rather the defining features of their lives are meant to be what God has done for them in Christ Jesus, particularly in their redemption. And so while, like them, you know, we might worry about persecution, reputation, uh, loss of money, the pressure we feel from temptation, the pressure for pleasure and satisfying desires, Peter reminds them and us that Christ is greater. That when we're joined to Jesus, we are children of an impartial Father who will lovingly discipline us and who also will lovingly protect us. We have been redeemed from those enslaving desires through this chosen mediator who bled for us. And so your only hope in God is when you see yourself in His story, the story of redemption, by faith. It's redemption, not sin, that has the final word in your story, if that's the case. Let's pray. Father, there's a sense in which I'm overwhelmed by everything I said. There's a lot there. And yet, uh, each person here can probably grab onto one or two things that really connects with where they are now. And I ask that your Spirit would help them to grab onto those things. To chew on those things. Father, in that process, help us all to grow in our understanding of grace of what You have done that we might receive grace, of what we do, so to speak, to receive grace, what real faith looks like, that we might understand to a greater degree of how grace works in our lives. Father, help us uh, to learn how to resist the sinful desires we all experience because of this redemption, because of this ransom paid for us by Jesus. 
Father, help us to receive encouragement as sons. That there is a, a, a plan that does not stop with redemption or doesn't stop with the resurrection, but that You do care about how we live. That You care even more than we do. And that You are at work in us to make us like Your Son that You love. And so continue that process and help us to trust You in that process. Help us to be encouraged in that process. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.